0: Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and I'm really looking forward to spending some time with you in Doctrine and Covenants, Sections 30 through 36 today. My goal with these lessons is not only to give you insight into the scriptures, but also give you ideas and materials that will help you to teach those insights to others in relevant and meaningful ways. So grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. Now this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching with Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. And unlike last week, which only had one section for us to study, this week has seven sections for us to cover with a lot of possible material. And I would love to be able to just go through it verse by verse with you. And as teachers, sometimes we may be tempted to do that. But that may work with studying, but I'm afraid it just won't work with teaching. More often than not, you've got to paint with broader brushstrokes or just zero in on a few powerful thoughts. And that's what I suggest you do as a teacher as you approach large blocks of Scripture like this. In fact, you'll probably have to pick and choose from the things that I've presented here as well especially if you're teaching gospel doctrine or Sunday school, and you only have one class period to cover it. So we look for common themes and unique principles to share. And That's how I'd like to approach these sections this week. So to begin the lesson, I like to play a little game of who said what. And you could do this as a slide presentation or as a handout. But what I have is a list of well-known individuals from the scriptures on the right hand, And then I'm going to read you some quotes from the scriptures. And your job is to pick which person said what. So here we go. Who am I that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? I am not eloquent, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And that would be Moses, the man who would deliver the Israelites from the most powerful civilization of his day. I was an obscure boy of no consequence in the world. That's Joseph Smith, the man who would restore the Latter day Church. I am but a lad, and all the people hate me, for I am slow of speech. That's Enoch, the man who would build the city that would be taken into heaven. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And that's Peter the man who would take the helm of the church after the Savior's death. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And that's Paul, the man who would spread Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor, and I am the least in my father's house. And that's Gideon, The man that would deliver Israel from an innumerable army of Midianites. So, do you see a pattern here? What kind of people does God often call to do extraordinary things in his kingdom? Ordinary people. People who themselves didn't feel very special or different, they felt unqualified or weak. But ordinary people are called to do extraordinary things. And that just seems to be the way the Lord usually works. And ordinary is just my word. The Lord used some different adjectives to describe the typical kind of person that He calls to accomplish His work. In Doctrine and Covenants 35, verses 13-14, through 14, what words are used to describe the kinds of people that God often calls to do His great and marvelous works? Wherefore, I call upon the weak things of the world, those who are unlearned and despised, to thresh the nations by the power of my Spirit. And their arm shall be my arm, and I will be their shield and their buckler, and I will gird up their loins, and they shall fight manfully for me. And their enemies shall be under their feet, and I will let fall the sword in their behalf. And by the fire of mine indignation will I preserve them. So what were the words? Weak, unlearned, despised. Each of our above individuals felt like they fit at least one of those descriptions. But what apparently can God accomplish with those weak, unlearned, and despised servants of his? They will thresh the nations. And quick note. If you have an older version of the Doctrine and Covenants, it may say thrash the nations. But I like that clarifying correction in the newest version of the scriptures, because I never thought that word was meant to be interpreted as retaliatory or punitive. No, to me it suggests work, harvesting, the separating of the wheat from the chaff, their diligence, their effectiveness. And not only do they thresh, but what else do they do according to verse 14? and they shall fight manfully for me. I, I, I love that phrase for some reason. They fight manfully for me. And that suggests courage, determination, sacrifice. And in return for that dedication, God promises that he will be with them and that he'll preserve them. So with that in mind, I'd like you to meet the 11 men that God is going to speak to in this week's sections. Now, I don't want this to turn into a church history lesson rather than a Doctrine and Covenants lesson, but there are some big names that we're going to be introduced to this week, and I'd love to give you some brief background on each of them. But let's see if you can find those 11 names. Section 30 is actually three different revelations directed to three different men that we've met before. So, first, David Whitmer, who of course, is one of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon. Then, Peter Whitmer, Jr., one of the eight witnesses of the Book of Mormon. And John Whitmer, also one of the eight witnesses to the Book of Mormon. And the Whitmers are all from the same family. In Section 31, we're introduced to Thomas B. Marsh from Boston. And his conversion story is really inspiring. He one day feels led by the Spirit to travel to western New York, where he hears about the Book of Mormon. So he decides to go to the Grandin Printing Office, where they're publishing the Book of Mormon. And he's able to obtain a small handful of pages, which he reads and immediately believes in. And soon after, he moves his entire family to Palmyra. So Thomas B. Marsh will eventually become the first president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Section 32 introduces us to one of my favorite personalities of the entire Restoration, Parley P. Pratt. And Parley's converted after stumbling upon a copy of the Book of Mormon through a friend. And he reads it all night and day and just can't put it down. And he is immediately, deeply converted. And he'll eventually become a member of the very first Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and he'll serve faithfully in that office for the rest of his life. Section 32 also mentions uh, Zyba Peterson. Now, Ziba will become one of the church's first missionaries, but unfortunately, he's not going to remain faithful and will be later excommunicated in 1833. Section 33 is directed to Ezra Thayer and Northrop Sweet. Now, we don't know as much about these men, but Ezra Thayer is a resident of Palmyra, and he's converted by the Smith family. And he remains faithful up until the expulsion from Missouri, and then he drifts away from the main body of the church. Northrop Sweet is also a Palmyra resident who's converted, but soon becomes disaffected from the church after it's established in Kirtland. In section 34, we meet Parley P. Pratt's younger brother, Orson Pratt, and he too is going to be a big name in church history and is also going to serve in the first quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And with the exception of a short departure from the church in Nauvoo, Orson will serve as an apostle for the rest of his life. And then in section 35, we have Sidney Rigdon. And this is a big one. Sidney's conversion is a real windfall for the early church. He's a professional minister and he leads a large congregation of a breakoff group of the Baptist church called the Campbellites. And it's Parley P. Pratt, that introduces him to the book of mormon and he's eventually baptized along with the majority of his congregation and sidney is going to become a member of the first presidency and a close friend of joseph's and a key figure in the restoration for many years to come and then finally in section 36 we meet edward partridge and edward partridge is converted after obtaining a copy of the book of mormon And meeting Joseph Smith. And Edward will become the first bishop of the church and remain faithful until his death in Nauvoo. Well, those are the 11 men that these sections are addressed to the ordinary people that God called to do his work. And most of these individuals were quite young, many of them in their 20s. They were unlearned and inexperienced. But God was able to accomplish a lot with them. And the majority of them really helped to establish the foundation of the early church. They were called to go out and preach the gospel with little training or experience. They didn't have the benefit of growing up with the primary or the youth organization or seminary or church leaders and family home evenings. They didn't even get a chance to spend six weeks in an MTC. And the majority of them had been members of the church for just months before they're being asked to go out and serve missions and spread the gospel. Weak, unlearned, despised. And yet, they set into motion the great threshing of the latter days. They do accomplish extraordinary things. So here's the truth. God calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things in his kingdom. Now, does God still work this way today? Does he continue to call on the weak, the unlearned, or the despised to build up his church? And can you think of any evidence of this? And I can think of a few examples. Who is it that makes up the bulk of our missionary force? Is it professional preachers, those with years of leadership and teaching experience, an exclusive club of carefully selected ambassadors for the church? No, it's it's 18 to 20-year-old boys and girls. Isn't that amazing? Somebody from the outside might look at that and say, you members of the Church of Jesus Christ are, are going to trust the future of your church to these young, naive, and unlearned youth? And how do we answer that question? Yes, yes, we do. And does it work? Yes, it works beautifully and has for decades. And it succeeds because God is with them. And they're humble, and they're willing to turn to the Spirit for help. If I were sent out into the mission field, No doubt I could do some good, but I'm afraid that I'd be tempted to rely more on my experience and my gospel knowledge rather than my faith. Those young missionaries can't help but rely on the Spirit. They're humble enough to recognize that they don't know everything and that they are utterly dependent on God's help and His Spirit to be successful. The innocence and youthful exuberance And the unintimidating nature of these young missionaries are some of the very things that allow them to succeed. It really is a miraculous work, isn't it? They have an incredible power to open people's hearts. Also, think of the leadership in the church. Who does God call to serve in positions of authority in his wards and branches? It's not professional bishops and youth leaders, and salaried employees that do the work. These early leaders are setting the foundation of what we call a lay ministry. Apparently, God has a lot of confidence in ordinary people. It's your neighbors, your friends, the average members of the community that are going to serve in these various positions of leadership in the church. Somebody who has only been a member of the church for a couple of months may be called to teach a primary or a Sunday school class. On my mission in Brazil, I remember serving under a branch president that wasn't much older than I was, maybe just by three or five years. And also, we rotate in our responsibilities in the church. One year I may be serving in a presidency, and the next I'm teaching primary. Ordinary people called to do extraordinary things, things that they haven't gone to school for, or have received training in, or have very little experience with. Serving as a bishop at this time, I feel that sense of awe and anxiety. I mean, who am I to run a ward? Who am I to issue callings, or determine budgets, or run a welfare program, or judge worthiness? I can promise you that I didn't feel qualified when I was called, and I continue to feel overwhelmed at times. But I can also attest to the fact that I can really feel that that God has been with me, that he's blessed me, he's helped me. Sometimes I like to refer to myself as a a two-fish man or a five-loaves man. That's a reference to the miracle of the loaves and the fishes found in the New Testament. When Jesus needed to feed the 5,000, he didn't just make bread and fish miraculously appear out of thin air. Instead, he asked his disciples for what they had. And when it was placed in his hands, it was multiplied and it provided more than enough for the crowd. Jesus made what they had enough. And I think it's the same with us when we're called. We may not feel qualified. And on our own, we really aren't, are we? But he says, bring what you have. Bring your desire, bring your faith and your unique gifts and talents. Place them in my hands. And then I'll multiply them. I'll make them more than enough to accomplish my work. So there you have it. Look at the people that God calls. Farmers, fishermen. Shepherds, tent makers, that was Paul. Paul was a tent maker. Young men and young women, new converts, the weak, the unlearned, the despised. It just doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how much experience or knowledge or training that you have. It doesn't matter if you're obscure or of no consequence, or you are the least, or you are poor, or all the people hate you or you are slow of speech, God has something for you to accomplish in his kingdom. We're all called to build up Zion in one way or another. And I believe that if we're willing to bring what we have to the table, to bring what we have to the hands of Christ, no matter how small, he'll multiply it and make it more than enough. So let's go out and fight manfully or womanfully for him. And he's sure to preserve us as well. And now, for a quick activity to introduce our next section of the lesson. What do each of these things have in common? Vikings, Jets, and Dolphins. Well, at least if you're from the United States, you'll, you'll maybe get this one. They're all NFL teams. How about this next one? A river a cave, and a face. They all have mouths. One more. A duck, a restaurant-goer, and Congress. And they all have bills. Well, the revelations to each of these men also have some things in common. And they all have some things that make them unique. We're going to start with what they have in common. And let's see if you can find what it is. Since section 30 has three different revelations in one, we'll see if you can find it there first. Now, it's not said exactly the same way to each of the Whitmer brothers, but the same principle or idea is in there. What is it? He says it in verse 4 to David, in verse 5 to Peter, and in verse 9 to John. What do they have in common? They were each asked to share the gospel with others. To David, he tells to attend to the ministry in the church and before the world. To Peter, he says, open your mouth to declare my gospel. And to John, proclaim my gospel as with the voice of a trump. And now that we know the common phrase, see if you can find it in each of the other sections. And if you're teaching the youth you may make it into a challenge to see who can find it first throw out a treat to whoever gets it first Can you find that message in section 31 to Thomas B Marsh and There's a few that you could point to here In verse 3 lift up your heart and rejoice for the hour of your mission is come and your tongue shall be loosed and you shall declare glad tidings of great joy unto this generation In verse 4 declare the thing which have been revealed to my servant, Joseph Smith Jr., and you shall begin to preach from this time forth. And also in verse six, declare my word. In section 32, it's in verse one, declare my gospel. In section 33 to Ezra and Northrop, verse two, lift up your voices as with the sound of a trump to declare my gospel. Also in verse eight, open your mouths. Verse nine, open your mouths. In verse 10, open your mouths. In section 34 to Orson Pratt, verse 5, preach my gospel. Verse 6, lift up your voice as with the sound of a trump to cry repentance. And verse 10, lift up your voice and spare not. To Sidney in section 35, verse 23, preach my gospel. And then to Edward Partridge, section 36, verse 1, preach my gospel. And also in this section, you might ask your class if they know who it was that first coined the phrase, every worthy, able young man should serve a mission. And they might answer, Spencer W. Kimball. However, it was actually the Lord in section 36 that said it. He just worded it a little bit differently. He said, and this commandment shall be given unto the elders of my church, that every man which will embrace it with singleness of heart may be ordained and sent forth, even as I have spoken. So what, apparently, is a common duty of the members of the church? To preach his gospel. All are called to proclaim, declare, attend to, preach, and open their mouths. All are sent forth. And at first I thought this whole lesson should focus on the principles of missionary work. But I'm afraid that that term has a lot of associations with it that won't serve our purposes broadly here. Most of the time that we think of missionary work, we think of young men and young women knocking on doors or us talking to the person next to us on the bus or the plane. And that is a big part of this. But I don't think that's all of it. Proclaiming the gospel is more than just proselyting. I like the way that the Lord said it to David Whitmer back in section 30. Thou shalt attend to the ministry in the church and before the world. I really like the word ministry for some reason. Ministry is in and out of the church. Proclaiming the gospel includes all my efforts to help others down the path of discipleship and strengthening faith. I am a minister to all. So yes, I do minister to strangers or the people I meet on the plane or the bus or my co-workers, but I also minister to my less active neighbor, to my active ward members, to my students, to my wife and my children, to all of you on this channel. Any efforts that we expend to bring others to Christ is ministering. It's missionary work. I really like that expanded definition of the term. Even people with strong testimonies need to be ministered to. Really, our family should be our top ministering priority, right? I know that at times I've had to remind myself of that principle. As a seminary teacher or a bishop or doing this channel, I may be tempted to think that the good that I can do in those areas justifies placing other things on the back burner because. Well, I'm teaching the gospel. Sometimes the Lord has had to gently remind me by whispering, Ben, the most important people that you need to bring to Christ, that you need to minister to, are Alicia, Caleb, Brayden, Avery, and Seth. My family. And hopefully we can all find the proper balance in our ministry to all these different groups of people throughout our lives. So a question to ask yourself and ponder, in what areas do I need to minister more? Is it to my less active ward members? Is it to my co-workers that aren't members of the church? Is it to the members of my ward? Is it my own family? And then ask yourself, what can I do more? And I'm sure that if you ponder those questions, the Spirit can inspire you to know what to do. But now, another activity that I believe also ties these sections together. The blessings of ministry, or the promises of proclaiming. And you could do this as a fill-in study guide. Invite your class to study the following verses and identify the promises that God makes to those who are willing to minister. Or you could simply list these verses on the board or a piece of paper and have them identify the promises together as a class. And here they are. 31 verse 2. I will bless you and your family. Ministering will bring blessings upon us and our families. And I've seen that. I've seen the profound positive effect that full-time missionary service has on younger siblings And even parents at home. I've seen families blessed financially, physically, and spiritually as they reach out to minister to others. I've seen times where ministering has led to the conversion of new families, and then those new families turn around and bless and strengthen the faith of those whose families have been members of the church for generations. When we minister, we not only bring blessings upon our own heads, but also the heads of our family members. In 31 verse 5, ministering brings forgiveness. Now, I don't want to exaggerate this too far to mean that if you do missionary work or ministering, that your sins are automatically wiped away and there's no need for confession or repentance. I don't think that's what that means. However, proclaiming the gospel is a cleansing act. It invites the mercy and the grace of Christ more deeply into our lives. Verse eleven, it shall be given you by the Comforter what you shall do and whither you shall go. Ministering invites the guidance of the Spirit. As a bishop, as a teacher, as a parent, there's been many times when I felt prompted to say or do or go somewhere through the Spirit. And I'm certain that if we're actively looking for opportunities to minister, the Comforter is going to guide us. To those opportunities, and help us to know what to do. In these next verses, it's a similar thought: Your tongue shall be loosed. Open your mouths, and they shall be filled. It's thirty-four, ten. Prophesy, and it shall be given by the power of the Holy Ghost. You may remember what was said to Hiram Smith back in section eleven. Seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word. And here in section 33, Ezra and Northrop are first told to open their ears. But once you've opened your ears and you have obtained my word, then we've got to graduate to the next step. We've got to open our mouths. And that's sometimes scary because we don't always know what we're going to say. That's when faith needs to step in. And this is one of those promises that I don't think we need to overcomplicate. I really think that at most times, it's just that simple. Open your mouth. Just go into the situation with faith and start talking. I believe that you'll find that the Spirit will provide the words. I know I was terrified the first time I gave a priesthood blessing. Who am I to speak on behalf of the Lord? But I opened my mouth and the words came. There have been times when students have asked me questions, when people have come into my office to ask for help, in situations with my children, in ordinations, in sitting aparts, and priesthood blessings. I have many times felt the Spirit loose my tongue and fill my mouth. And I know He'll do the same for you. I wanted to end with this one probably the most common promise. To John Whitmer, God says to not fear what man can do, for I am with you. To Thomas B. Marsh, he says be faithful unto the end, and lo, I am with you. To Parley P. Pratt and Ziba Peterson, he promises I myself will go with them and I will be in their midst. To Orson Pratt, he says, If you're faithful, behold, I am with you until I come. And to Sidney Rigdon, you may recall the Lord's promise to the weak and the unlearned that their arms would be his arm and that he would be their shield. The Lord wants us to know that we do not walk the path of discipleship alone, he's there to walk with us. We may not always see him, but he's there. It's like the story. Of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, who walked with Christ for miles but didn't realize that it was him, that he was there all along. It was only after he had left that they realized that their hearts had burned within them as he taught them the scriptures. Sometimes Jesus is going to be with us and we may not recognize it. I'm really intrigued by the way that he worded that promise to Orson Pratt I am with you until I come. And at first glance, that sentence just doesn't make any sense. I'm with you until I come? How is that even possible? Sounds like a paradox. But it is true. Christ will be with us in spirit until he comes in body. Christ walks the path of life with the faithful. And you're probably all familiar with the poem, Footprints in the Sand. And it's the one where the person is walking down the beach that represents their life, and they notice two sets of footprints in the sand. But then they notice something. When their life is hardest, when they face the toughest challenges, only one set of footprints marks the sand. So the author protests, and he wonders how Christ could have left him at those times when he needed him the most. That's when the Lord says, Oh no, child, you don't understand. Those were the times I carried you. Now I like that thought, but one day I was reading the Old Testament and I found an even better version of that poem. I like Isaiah's take on footprints in the sand. See how he improves on the idea. He says in 46 verses 3 through 4, Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. And even to your old age, I am He. And even to whore hairs or or gray hairs will I carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. So you see, the Lord carries you from birth to death. In the Isaiah version, there is only ever one set of footprints. Christ is with us. Until he comes. And perhaps when he returns, we'll say, Thank you so much for being with me while I waited for you. Our own paradoxical statement. That makes total sense. And you know what? It's those times when I'm ministering, or declaring, or proclaiming that I feel him the nearest. If you struggle to feel the presence of Christ in your life, try declaring his word try ministering to others. Your arm will become his arm, your voice his voice, and your heart his heart. So the truth that's taught here, when I declare his gospel, the Lord promises his presence, forgiveness, guidance, inspiration, and blessings for our families. And a discussion question that you could ask When have you seen one of these blessings come to you or your family through proclaiming the gospel? And that's whether that proclaiming is to people in the church or out of the church, in the world or in your own family. How has your ministry blessed you in one of these ways? Now, I don't want to give you the wrong impression here. I don't believe that our major motivation for declaring God's word is so that we can get something out of it. I don't proclaim the gospel for me. Yes, there are blessings that come. And yes, the Lord will do great things for those who fully engage in his work. But the fuel that drives those efforts is not self-concern. The fuel is love for God and love for our fellow man. Like the sons of Mosiah, who were desirous that salvation should be declared to every creature, for they could not bear that any human soul should perish. We do it because we're filled with love and concern for our fellow man and the enthusiasm we feel for the gospel ourselves. I think that when we look back on our lives from the eternal world with the aid of a true eternal perspective, that it will be our ministry that mattered most. All our earthly successes and the material possessions that we acquired will mean nothing at that point. But the people that we taught the individuals we sought to save, the souls that we blessed through our ministering will be our greatest treasures. Well, that to me is the message that seems to really unify these sections, the common theme that runs throughout each of them. But remember that we also believe in a personal God, a God that works with and cares about the individual. He's a one-by-one God and not only offers general instruction and counsel, but individualized guidance as well. He gives us canonized scripture and patriarchal blessings. So I might also consider approaching these sections looking for what is unique in each. So here's another way that you could approach this. As an icebreaker, a simple discussion question. What's your favorite treat and why do you love it so much? And for me, it's probably a Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream shake from my favorite ice cream shop. And it it's delicious and creamy. And they pack it with big chunks of peanut butter cups. And oh, it's amazing. My mouth is watery right now. And those occasions when I treat myself to one are always savored. So let your class discuss that question for a minute or so. And then with that as a backdrop, I'd like to share this brief quote from Joseph Smith. And he said, The Lord, who well knew our infantile and delicate situation, vouchsafed for us a supply of strength and granted us line upon line, here a little and there a little, of which the following was a precious morsel. And that was said in relation to the book of Moses, which Joseph had recently received. I really like the term precious morsel. Sometimes the Lord gives us delicious, precious morsels to enjoy. One of the symbols for his word is food. Delicious food. Feast upon the words of Christ, he tells us in the Book of Mormon. There are verses and truths and insights from the scriptures and the words of the living prophets and my patriarchal blessing that are delicious to me. They go down easy. I come back to them again and again and always find enjoyment and nourishment from them. So, for this part of the lesson, we're going to take a look at one unique, precious morsel. From each of these seven sections. We aren't going to do the full meal or full treatment version on each of these because, well, you won't have time to do that as a teacher. But you may have some time to give your students one precious morsel from each. And each of these sections has three elements, a quick activity, an insight, and a question to go with it. And you really don't need to do these uh, in order because they do stand alone. So here's a little teaching idea that works well with the youth. You could have a plate with seven different kinds of treats on it. Then invite a student to come up and pick one. On the underside of the treat, you could have a piece of paper with the section number and title of that precious morsel. Then do that portion of the lesson and then invite another student to come forward. And do as many as you can in the class time. But just be sure to save a treat for everybody to hand out to by the end. If you're teaching adults, though, you could just list the different titles and have them vote on which they would like most to cover or select somebody to choose one. But here's a list of them all, and I'll go ahead and walk you through each one. So section 30, fear factor. Do you know your phobias? What does a person with these phobias fear? Arachnophobia. Fear of spiders. Aerophobia, fear of flying, claustrophobia, fear of being trapped in small confined spaces, acrophobia, fear of heights, brontophobia, fear of thunderstorms, and probably the most common fear that people have: glossophobia. And that is the fear of public speaking. Well, what fear does David Whitmer have? Look in verse 1. He has the fear of man. He's afraid of what others think rather than what God thinks. It's the same lesson that Joseph had to learn back with the lost manuscript. But that's not the only problem he has. Lord is going to chastise David a little bit here. What are some of his other problems? He's not relied on the Lord for strength as he ought to have. His mind has been on the things of the earth more than the things of God. He's not giving heed to the spirit, not giving heed to his leaders. And he is giving heed to those that are not sent by God. So what is the solution to these kind of issues? I think the solution lies in the title that the Lord uses for himself in this instance. Savior has many titles, and he'll often use a title that is tailored to the context of the situation that he's addressing. And what does he call himself here? Your maker. Why would he use that title? Because the maker knows the product. They write the instruction manual. They put together the FAQs, and they assemble the customer support team. They created the product, So they know it inside and out. So he's saying, David, trust your maker. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows how you're put together and what you run on. Don't be afraid of man and don't listen to his instructions and his ideas. Learn to trust God's. It's like those times when I've been struggling to put something together or or do a repair and it's just not working. And my wife comes and asks, did you read the instruction manual? And being a man, I usually haven't. And I have to humbly go to the box and consult the manual provided by the maker. So when things are going wrong in your life, when you're having problems, when you need help, turn to your maker and trust his instructions. So here's the question. When has an instruction from your maker helped solve one of your problems? Section 31, Road to Recovery. Turn to a partner and share a scar story. What's the story behind one of your scars? Is it a broken bone? Surgery? Bike crash? In my case, I'd probably tell the story of the time that I fell off a bunk bed as a child and hit my head on a dresser. These stories are usually quite interesting to both hear and tell. So also ask, what did the doctors have to do to help you heal, and how long was the recovery? Now look in section 31 and find the word the Lord used to describe what Thomas B. Marsh was to be to the church. The answer is in verse 10. He was to be a physician to the church. A physician heals people. And Thomas B. Marsh was not a medical doctor. So this healing that he would do would have to be spiritual in nature. And I love that. Can we be physicians to the church? Our current prophet is both. Not only has he spent his life healing people physically, but spiritually as well. He's been mending hearts for decades. And we too can be spiritual physicians. We can look for those that are hurting in some way. And reach out to heal them. That can be physically, spiritually, financially, or emotionally. When we see those hurts or wounds, we can do all we can to be a physician to those individuals. So question, who is somebody that has been a physician to you in the church? And how could you be a better physician yourself? Section 32, Finding Kirtland. First, have a student read verse 5 and ask, what promise did the Lord make to these missionaries if they were willing to heed his word? He promised to bless them. Well, here is one of those great blessings that they received for doing just that. Then have a student read the following excerpt from Revelation in Context. In his autobiography, Parley P. Pratt wrote that while still in New York, The four missionaries called on an Indian nation at or near Buffalo and spent part of a day with them, instructing them in the knowledge of the record of their forefathers. In retrospect, the greatest impact of their mission occurred partway through their travels. Pratt tells how they continued on their journey until they stopped in Mentor, Ohio, to call on Sidney Rigdon, Pratt's former friend and instructor in the Reformed Baptist Society. They presented him with a copy of the Book of Mormon, which he promised to read, and then taught the restored gospel in many homes in the area. The consequence of this was that, at length, Mr. Rigdon and many others came forward and were baptized by us, and received the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. Pratt tells how the news of the discovery of the Book of Mormon and the marvelous events connected with it created a general interest and excitement in Kirtland and in all the regions round about. The people thronged us night and day, insomuch that we had no time for rest and retirement. Meetings were convened in different neighborhoods, and multitudes came together soliciting our attendance. In two or three weeks from our arrival in the neighborhood with the news, we had baptized 127 souls. Among those they introduced to the gospel were Isaac Morley, John Murdoch, Lyman White, and Edward Partridge. So, you see, this stopping by of Parley P. Pratt to see his old friend Sidney Rigdon while en route to his Native American mission will have enormous impact on the future of the church. The church nearly doubles in size within weeks because of this. A future member of the first presidency will be found because of this. The gathering place of the church will soon be in Kirtland because of this. And some of the most influential future members of the church will find the restored gospel because of this. This decision to see Sydney on the way to Missouri will change everything. And I believe there's a powerful truth in this. And I word it this way. Sometimes on the way to Missouri, you find Kirtland. In other words, sometimes when you're on your way to fulfill a certain commandment, unexpected blessings and opportunities will present themselves. These blessings and opportunities come because we are giving heed to God's word, because we are traveling in the way of his commandments. Some examples, while exerting efforts to fulfill my callings in the church, I've often forged friendships that have blessed my life immensely in unexpected ways. I served my mission in an effort to share the gospel with other people, but I never supposed to fall so in love with the country that I served in the Brazilian people, language, and culture have enriched and blessed my life in a way that I never expected. My father decided to start teaching for education week at BYU to bless people's lives with what he's learned. However, it was because of that, that an opportunity for him to travel arose. And our entire family has been able to travel to many parts of the world now because of that experience. When you're on the Lord's path, you just never know what serendipitous and surprising blessings await you. So, question Have you ever found Kirtland on your way to Missouri? Section 33, Scripture Power. Something I really like about Section 33 is all the allusions to other scripture. It's a cross reference paradise in there. So, here's the challenge Can you find the verse that goes with the cross reference? And you could do this as a handout. Where do you see these other stories or people being referred to in section 33? By the way, I realize that there are many others in this section. But to keep it simple, I narrowed it down to these six. So verse 3 is a reference to the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Verse 4, a reference to Jacob 5 the allegory of the olive trees. Verse 8 is a clear reference to Nephi. Verse 10, a reference to the mission of John the Baptist, to prepare the way for the Savior. Verse 13, a reference to Peter's declaration of thou art the Christ. And that's when Jesus responds to him with that declaration of, upon this rock I will build my church. And then verse 17 is an allusion to the parable of the ten virgins. So here's a question. Why do you think the Doctrine and Covenants quotes other books of Scripture so often? One personal thought on that question. Because Scripture is one great whole of truth. There is one gospel, and it is contained in all the books of Scripture together. So be careful not to separate any book of Scripture from the others. Each has its place and importance. There's a great intertextuality and support flowing in all directions from each of the standard works. I can promise you that you will not understand the Book of Mormon all that well if you don't know your Bible. And you won't understand your Bible very well without the help of the Book of Mormon. The Doctrine and Covenants will not make much sense to you if you haven't studied the Bible or the Book of Mormon. And the Doctrine and Covenants clarifies doctrines and principles that the Bible and the Book of Mormon only allude to. I'm constantly amazed by how often the Scriptures draw on each other. I know of people who proudly say that they've read the Book of Mormon X amount of times, but at the same time, they've never even cracked open the Old Testament or the Epistles of Paul. Now, the Book of Mormon should be a consistent part of our study, but not our only study. So be careful about becoming a scripture specialist. Don't study one book of scripture at the expense of all the others. Become familiar and comfortable with all the standard works. And then you will begin to see how they support and comment on and enrich our understanding of each of the others. Another thought. The Lord is also inviting them here to put themselves in the scriptures, into those stories. In a way, he's saying, you are my laborers, you are my modern Nephites, you are my wise virgins, you are my John the Baptists preparing the way for Christ. The scriptures will always mean more to us when we put ourselves in them or liken the scriptures. Section 34, the first hymn, and this is a real short one, but has a very meaningful message. It's in what God calls Orson Pratt in verses 1 through 3. My son Orson, hearken and hear and behold what I, the Lord God, shall say unto you, even Jesus Christ your Redeemer, the light and the life of the world, a light which shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Who so loved the world that he gave his own life that as many as would believe might become the sons of God. Wherefore, you are my son. And there's such a tenderness and closeness in those verses. This is a personal manifestation of the promise found in John 3.16. It's not just teaching us that God so loved the world that he sent his son to save us, but that God loved you so much that he sent you his son. He's speaking directly to Orson, to an individual. You are my son. You are my child. We're all individual children of God and have individually been saved by Jesus Christ. And when the church translates the hymn book into a new language, do you know which song is always translated first? It's hymn 301. I am a child of God. It contains the most basic and fundamental of truths. So for an activity... Either sing, I am a child of God, have somebody perform it as a musical number, or show a video of it, and I'll provide a link to a really great one here. In question, what experiences have you had in your life that have helped you to know that you are a child of God and that he loves you? 35. Bigger and better. Activity, what word shows up in each of these verses? And 10. And the word is great or greater. And it's used just a little differently each time. Can you put each of those greats together into one sentence? And here's what I came up with God has a greater work of great things for us to do in His great work, so that He can show us great things. So remember that great can either mean bigger or better. I think God means it in both ways. God has greater things for us to do, or more for us to do. As members of the church, we're probably quite a bit busier than your average person. We have our church callings, family scripture study, personal scripture study, sacrament and other church meetings, activities, general conference, frequent prayer, missionary work, temple and family history work. We're also encouraged to develop ourselves physically, intellectually, spiritually, and socially. On top of that, we've got careers and families to manage. We have a great work to do or a big work to do. But what's the flip side of that coin? We will become great or better because of that great work. And God is able to show us great things or do great things for us because we are involved in a greater work. So question, what is something great, better, that God has given you in your greater or bigger work? Last section, where can I turn for peace? Section 36. How would you fill in this blank? It feels blank to be a member of the church. And I don't know how you'd fill that in, maybe with the words good or joyful, but perhaps also challenging, hard, or busy. Let's look at how Jesus would have filled in that blank. Here's what he said in Matthew 11:28 28 through 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So Jesus might fill that blank in with the words easy and light and restful. And then section 36 is going to give us another word that we could add from verse 2. What kinds of things does the Holy Ghost teach us? The peaceable things of the kingdom. Would you have thought to answer with one of those words? I wonder if many of us would. Do we find church membership difficult? Do we find the commandments stifling? Do we struggle with toxic perfectionism? Do we stress and get anxious and and doubt whether we're going to make it or not? And maybe we haven't heard or taught enough of the peaceable things of the kingdom. The gospel is meant to bring peace, and joy, and rest to our lives. The Lord seems to say those things all the time in the scriptures. And I think he looks at us as members of the church, he says, are you listening? Do you hear that? My gospel is not to add to your burdens, but to make those burdens light and easy, to make your life more restful and peaceable, even though it's a greater work. And I know you're busy, We should be finding peaceable things. So, what we want to do as teachers, parents, and church leaders is to make sure that we're teaching and emphasizing the peaceable things of the kingdom. These are the things that hold people in the gospel principles of love, service, joy, forgiveness, future glory, encouragement, truth, and the blessings of obedience. The peaceable, restful, easy, light things of the gospel. Let's make sure that we've got enough of that in our lives. So question, what truths or principles of the gospel bring you the most peace? So there you have it, at least one precious morsel from each of those great sections. With that, I want to thank you for joining me today. It's always a pleasure to spend this time with you each week in the scriptures. If you're interested in the slide presentation that I used here, or the handouts that I make, or you'd like a lesson plan that follows what we talked about, you'll find links to those resources at teachingwithpower.com. If you found this lesson helpful, please subscribe, like, make a comment, share it with those that you feel it could help. Thank you so much for watching. And as always, get out there and teach with power.